the really interesting, lasting, creative ideas stick, and 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 they um, they sort of you know carve a place in my in my memories, um, and so just. The, the practice of recalling and sitting down in silence and recalling previous ideas or um, you know previous um, you know story concepts is an interesting exercise in and of itself. Welcome to the Habit Podcast: Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Julian Arvaca is the author of The Memory Index, a novel set in a world where a disease has ravaged human memories and people depend on artificial recall. Julian Vaca, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So you, when this, actually when we're recording this, your book has not released yet, but it'll be releasing right about the time this episode releases, The Memory, in, the memory Index, your first novel. That's uh, tell me a little bit about that book. Let's give us an overview. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always tell people that I enjoy writing in the, in the genre that I enjoy reading the most. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously writers are readers first. And I've just always gravitated toward speculative fiction, specifically for young readers, for young adults. Uh-huh. Um, and so the memory index is really a kind of a cocktail of a lot of different things that I enjoy. Um, first and foremost, the, the main character, uh, Freya, she is Mexican-American, uh, just like myself. Yeah. And so with the character, with her hero's journey, I was able to draw from you know, experiences from my own childhood, you know, being a, a first-generation Mexican-American, navigating rural Tennessee. Um, and so it was really important for me to ensure that the, that the character was authentic in that respect. Um, and then, of course, I, I just, I really enjoy um, science fiction and fantasy. And so, um, yeah, I really wanted to, you know, have that sort of be my, my sandbox, my, my playground. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, the 80s are in vogue right now and have been for a while. And so um, I thought it, it might be fun to sort of imagine um, a 1980s that was um, sort of impacted by rapid memory loss. And, and I've always been fascinated by, by memories uh, as well. And so all that to say, the memory index is um, sort of, you know, all of those different elements pulled together. Um, because any good sci-fi is is really just the genre is really just a vehicle for unpacking human themes, the human condition. Mm-hmm. And so, even though we start with this interesting, you know, hook, um, I, I was really more interested in exploring questions like, "Are we more than the sum of our own memories?" Mm-hmm. Um, or another question that I unpack, and really in the second book more so, is um, just how intimidating it, the the thought of you know, well, really just asking the question, what's more intimidating, losing your memories or confronting the difficult ones? Mm. Um, and so all that to say, um, the memory index is, is very much um, me sort of exploring and unpacking uh, those questions through the subgenre of speculative fiction for, for young adults. Yeah. So the idea here is there's been an, a, an illness that has ravaged people's memories and then they depend on artificial artificial recall, recall. 
That's okay. correct. That's correct. So, so the, in the book, the, um, you know, the sort of Skynet of, of my world, uh, memory frontier, they've developed artificial recall, which is, um, essentially you, you're scanned by, um, this device called a me reader, a memory reader, and it locates at risk memories, imprints them onto memory tapes. And then you play those back a set number of times until you relearn that particular memory. Then you discard it and move on to the next one. But at the start of the novel, Memory Frontier has announced groundbreaking medical technology that's going to forever change mankind's battle with memory loss. But they need to trial this new tech. And so um, they lottery 500 random students from across the country and send them to a boarding school in Tennessee. Um, but of course, when the main character arrives... Um, not everything is as it seems. And right. so, um, you know, so that's sort of the, the hook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that you, you, the memory reader is called a me reader. Cause you, mm. you just asked the question is, a, is, is our memory ourselves? Yeah. And it's been important ways it is, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, even, you know, as I'm reflecting on my own childhood and, and drawing from my own memories and, you know, sort of, going through that sort of exercise. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, and really memories are, um, are a form of storytelling. Um, you know, I think we, we talked about this, um, earlier when we were, you know, corresponding via email and it's something that I, that I think about often, um, you know, storytelling, oral storytelling is memory preservation in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. Um, and I'm just, I'm just super fascinated by that. And I think, you know, this idea of, you know, preserving our own history, our own, you know, our own heritage through oral storytelling is more urgent than ever with so many different distractions, so many things vying for our attention, whether it's social media, you know, whether it's, you know, streaming. I mean, we just live in such an age of instant gratification. And so more than ever, it's important for us to um, continue that sort of tradition of oral memory sharing of oral story storytelling. Yeah. You mentioned that you're Mexican American first generation. I think you said, um, is, is tell me about the oral tradition, oral storytelling tradition in, in that culture. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'll provide just a little bit of context and then, um, you know, lead into that question. Um, so, you know, my mom immigrated from Mexico when she was very young and, you know, both my parents are bilingual. Uh, my grandparents are, are, were, you know, actually three out of four of my grandparents only <laughs> spoke Spanish. Uh-huh. Um, but interestingly, my parents um, were very much of the sort of mindset that, okay, you're in America, you are going to speak English exclusively. We're not going to teach you Spanish. Um, And so the, yeah, so the thinking was it might impede or or hold us back academically. And so, um, you know, I, there was always kind of this barrier growing up in terms of, you know, trying to embrace my heritage because I didn't speak the the language. Um, And then when, you know, I spent my formative years in, in, you know, rural Tennessee, when we moved over here from Southern California, I started to notice that most of my friends in this rural town where I grew up were white. And so I had this interesting kind of, I guess you could call it like a crisis of identity at a young age, because on the one hand, I couldn't fully embrace my heritage because I didn't speak the language. But then I always felt sort of disconnected from my white friends because I looked a little different. 
Um, and so in the midst of all that, um, you know, one of the ways that I could sort of connect uh, with my heritage and, and, you know, my parents and their story was hearing those stories from, from my mom. Yeah. Um, you know, hearing those stories of, you know, how she and, and, and my aunts and uncles, she's one of nine, how they came over from Mexico when she was young, their journey uh, to, you know, to citizenship, yeah. um, all those kinds of things. So I think in my unique story or in my unique instance, uh, storytelling was, was that much more important because it was how I connected my now, my present to, you know, my past. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so this book, you chose to set this book in an alternative 1987. Now, I don't know how old you are, Julian, but you look like you may not, not remember a whole lot about 1987. It's funny that you say that because multiple people have said that already. And um I think, yeah, I, I definitely look younger, younger than I am. If, if you can believe it, my wife and I have... We actually have four kids, um, okay. um, and, and you know, we actually this is a, a sidebar, um, but we actually technically have five. Um, our third has a twin in heaven, um, but we we had kids. Uh, we started having kids at, at a young age. I was I was so I was born in eighty seven. Okay, and as a you know child of the nineties, I was definitely consuming a lot of pop culture from the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the decision to set it in the eighties was, I, I really wanted to play with analog technology. So yeah, tape right. decks, you right. know, Walkman and, you know, VHS camcorders. I just thought it, it would be interesting if humanity was, um, if, if we had to confront this enigmatic plague-like phenomenon, like memory killer with analog technology, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, because it, the story almost doesn't work to, if you said it today where smartphones are, you know, ubiquitous. And I mean, there's just, right. you know, and I, so I wondered if that was a big part of that choice. The, the, the thing, you know, cell phones make storytelling hard. Yeah, it's it, well, it's if, true. If and, Romeo and, and Juliet had had, had had cell phones, right. That disaster at the end wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I don't want to, um, I don't want to spoil the end of Romeo and Juliet, but you know. Yeah, to anyone who's listening who's not familiar with the ending, sorry. Um, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. You know, I think um, there's I, I, as a as a storyteller, I'm always conscious of you know elements in my story that might date mm-hmm. the story itself. You, you know, you always want unless you're being intentional with you know the atmosphere, which obviously I was 1987. It's clearly. Um, I guess you could technically say it's historical fiction in that in that uh, sense. <laughs> don't please don't say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, you, when you, you said when you said the eighties are big now, I thought you know the eighties were really big when I was in high school. That's fair enough. Uh, fair I enough. Nineteen eighty-seven. <laughs> well, we can we can a a, a a campus minister friend of mine. Uh, yeah. His his uh, students said. Uh, they they were telling about some eighties party they've been to. They said, "Did you have eighties parties when you were in school?" He says, "Yeah, we called them parties." <laughs> Listen, I, I, I can, I can, I can kind of empathize with that, uh, Jonathan, because, um, I've started meeting a lot of young professionals who, when they tell me that they were born in, in the early aughts, I'm like, it, it yeah. blows, it blows my mind. Like yeah. that, you know, that there's young people out there who were born after, you know, nine 11, which is kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, like a history landmark as I sort of think back on my, on my childhood and my mm-hmm. youth, I, I, to, 9-11 has always sort of been like a, 
you know, historical mile marker. Sure. Um, but it, anyway, all that to say, I, 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 you know, I'm always intentional about elements or details in the story that, you know, that I can, you know, withhold or sort of restrain so that it feels evergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I I've noticed when I go back and read books from five, six, seven years ago, they'll reference things and, you know, in technology or, 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 you know, something that's, you know, even now is outdated um, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a online tool or something like Napster, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> y- you see the point. Yeah. You, um, you said this is historical fiction, which is fair enough. <laughs> Except that it's also alternative 1987, mm-hmm. you know, where this thing has happened. Yeah. That obviously didn't happen in 1987. Um, and so I'm interested in, in you know, we're, we're used to the idea of let's talk about a dystopian future or, or you know, a, this is set in the near future where the, you know, the following thing happened. You know, um, I was a little surprised to learn, you know, when I knew this was a story about, a memory plague. I just assumed it was set in the future. And then it turns out it's set in 1987. Um, yeah. You, you've already said part of that was, was an interest in telling the story without digital technology, which I, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so like, you just sort of have a, a nostalgia for an age that you kind of missed. Um, <laughs> it's too bad you missed it. It was great. I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I'd love to hear more about, about that. Yeah. And I'm also super interested in, you know, what were the challenges that that presented to you as a, as a storyteller? Absolutely. Well, one of the other decisions that went into, you know, setting the story in, in the 1980s was atmosphere. And um, I, I just, I adore music as an art medium. I think it's one of the more transcendent art mediums that, that we're fortunate enough to, you know, to indulge in. And so, you know, 80s music and, and really just music in general, um, you know, plays a, a role in the story. And so, you know, I did tons of research, obviously, you know, in preparation for this story. And I came across something really interesting. Um, there's this practice called, um, it, well, it's, it's basically where you play mood matching music mm-hmm. um, while you're doing tasks or chores around the house or, um, you know, you, you, you play atmospheric or, or orchestral music while you go about your day. And, um, studies have found that the pairing of the music with the, um, you know, the, the doing of the task, whatever it is, helps to sort of cement that moment, um, Mm. and, and create a, a lasting memory. Um, and so all that to say, um, I really wanted atmosphere to to play a, a role in in the story, and so that's why um, there's an accompanying uh, playlist mm-hmm. with with the book where I cataloged every yeah. every song that's referenced in the book, and there's a QR code in, in in the back of the book where readers can scan it, and it'll take them to their yeah, you know yeah. streamer of choice, Apple, Amazon, or, or Spotify, um, and so yeah, again atmosphere, music, sort of pop culture. It was important to me to make that feel authentic to the story, not to feel gimmicky, of course, because you can certainly um, over overplay that hand. Um, but I really wanted that to more support the story. Um, and then, so, so that was, a, that was another reason why I, you know, I, I wanted to set it in the eighties. Um, and then also, you know, we've learned so much about the human brain since then. 
Um, but you know, back then there were there was still a lot of uncertainty. There were still a lot of lingering questions. A lot of the things that we know now back then might have just been revelations or, or newly yeah. discovered. Um, and so all those kinds of you know decisions or, or you know all those kinds of elements played into the decision, I should say, to set this in 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 the eighties. Um, so yeah, yeah. In any um, were there. Any difficulties, challenges, um, that any problems you had to solve that, that come to mind? I'm... Oh yeah, a- a- absolutely. The, the the first thing that comes to mind is, um, and this is less about like the technical, you know, medical aspect of the story itself, and this is more just like practical in terms of like how the story is structured. When I pitched this to to my publisher, it was initially going to be a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I'm a, a debut author, they said, well, you know, how about two books? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to sort of take the outline and the idea for the story, which initially spanned three books and rework that into two. Um, and I got to say, I'm, I'm really glad that they, you know, pushed back and, and, and that we arrived at two books versus three, yeah. um, because it forced me to make a lot of, you know, creative choices um, it forced me to, you know, really uh, pick and choose what, you know, remained in the story, what was pertinent to the story. Um, so I say that was the first challenge. And then the other thing that was challenging with the story. So I, I come from a background of self-publishing. Before I was traditionally published, I self-published. Um, I used a tool called CreateSpace, which uh, it's now Amazon's print-on-demand service. But essentially, you only sell copies um, when they're purchased. So mm-hmm. you don't have to buy like a pallet of 500 and hope they sell. Um, so anyway, I, I come from self-publishing. And so learning the ins and outs of traditional publishing was, there was a learning curve there. Um, I had to, you know, really exercise a lot of trust before I was wearing a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, the decision maker in a lot of different elements, but now I have a team and I have to mm-hmm. trust them. Um, so that was certainly a, a learning curve as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, memory. We got to talk about memory a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm sure you've done some thinking about the relationship between memory and creativity. Um, so I, I just love to to talk about that. I've. Th- this is something I've done a little thinking about too. So, so yeah. But you go first. <laughs> yeah. So the so the marriage of memory and and creativity it's it's really fascinating because you know as a as a creative I, I, that muscle is always working in my head i'm i'm always observing conversations at coffee shops or you know listening to music or watching something on tv or reading something and an idea will pop in creativity will strike um but i don't always have the opportunity to you know, pull out my notebook and, and jot that idea down. And so, um, you know, because oftentimes creativity strikes in the car when I'm listening to music. For some reason, I have found that that is um, when a lot of my ideas will pop into my head. Um, and you know what? Over over time, um, a lot of those ideas will sort of drift into the wind and, and then I'll just forget them altogether. But the really interesting, lasting creative ideas stick and 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 they um they sort of 
you know, carve a place in my, in my memories. Um, and so just the, the practice of recalling and sitting down in silence and recalling previous ideas or, um, you know, previous, um, you know, story concepts is an interesting exercise in and of itself. Um, and then, you know, I, gosh, journaling is, is, you know, is an exercise in taking your thoughts and your, um, your ruminations, your, your musings and, and sort of, you know, um, putting them on, on paper and preserving them. Um, and so in a lot of ways, that's kind of memory preservation too. Um, and, and there's been studies that show, you know, when you write with pen to paper, um, it's far more creatively stimulating than keyboard and computer. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but, um, there is a really interesting marriage of creativity and memory. Um, I'm curious what, you know, you've kind of considered about the two. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, a previous episode of this podcast with, um, with Jessica Hooten Wilson, um, she mentioned something that I had, um, never known, never put together. And that is that the word invention comes from the same word as inventory. Mm. And so that um, you, when we invent, you know, from a storytelling perspective, and, you know, you, as a fiction writer, you're free to make up whatever you want to make up, you know, to invent what you want to invent. But it's interesting that whoever sort of put those words together, right, as yeah. the language developed, uh, those the idea of what's already in your, you know, my invention is not really my invention. I'm not creating ex nihilo, right? I am putting together things that have that have been in my uh, in my memory before, yeah. and that is the you know, my memory that ties me to the past is also the way I, I move forward and, and make things make new things. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a really really interesting idea. Yeah, that's that is, and you know, as as you know, as Christians, as Christian creatives, I think it's especially fascinating too. Like when you, when you look at the Bible, um, you know, the entire narrative of, you know, the new Testament is sort of, um, drawing from and recalling, um, you know, what happened in the old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we see that on the page in, in, in the Bible. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a really, fascinating um idea something yeah. fascinating to consider i love that yeah uh i mean as you read through scripture it's amazing how how often that that idea of remembering comes up yeah and how often you know in the old testament they'll say let's just pause a minute and 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 run through remember you were enslaved in egypt and then yeah. you you know walk through the red sea and and the Lord drowned the Egyptian armies. And then, you know, and it's, yeah. it's really remarkable how often um, that story comes up again. It's true. It's it, true. Let's, let's remember. And yeah. Passover, you know, Passover is let's remember the night yes. that we delivered. And, and um, you know, the Lord's Supper. You know, yeah. Remember and proclaim. Uh, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, now, so... As you've already alluded, our journals, our stories, these are repositories of memory, right? Your mm-hmm. your book is about memories, you know, a, 
memory that's outside our brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, in you know, we we have memories in our inside. We also have external memories, mm-hmm. and some of those are stories that we didn't even write. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so, so that stories are a repository of cultural memory. Um, and although I, I ran across, I read this article. It was, I, I actually looked it up again this morning. Um, it was from 2006. So it's 16 years old. So I guess it is stuck in my memory for sure. Um, but it described these huge epics um, that were you know, written in India that for generation after generation were passed down as an oral tradition mm. um, among sort of a, I don't know if they were monks or if they were sort of a, a, a community of, of, uh, again, I think monks is the wrong word, but, but a community sure. of mystics or, or mm-hmm. uh, religious people who live together, pass these stories on. And I mean, it was like, it was like one of these, epics was much, much longer than the Iliad, for instance. Um, and it was just something that they memorized and, and passed, passed down orally. Well, somebody got the, an idea that makes a lot of sense to me. Let's go write it. Let, let's go dictate it. Right? Yeah. And you may know where the story is going when they went to dictate it and it was written down. People lost their ability to, to remember it. Mm. I mean, so I think that's really interesting that that the written word is a way of preserving memory, but it also externalizes memory in such a way that our our internal memory, it does something to our internal memory. Yeah, that's... that's, For whatever reason, I guess those monks or whoever they were, knowing that it was written down, just couldn't quite bring themselves to... To keep it in their heads. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm going to have to dig that article up and 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 look into that. Um, I'm really fascinated by that, specifically because one of the things that I explore, uh, without giving too much away, in the book, is the importance of shared memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, in turn, in terms of, you know, um, building those shared yeah. memories or those moments with our community, and um, you know, just the importance of. Uh, memory, uh, you know, memory building together and sort of that togetherness with our community. Um, and so like, I, I was just very, very, very fascinated with that whole idea. Um, there's this interesting phenomenon called transactive memory, um, which, yeah, it's something I came across in the research. It's basically this idea of, you know, if you have multiple people um, you know, experiencing something and commit committing whatever that experience is to you know together, committing that to memory mm-hmm. as a shared memory. That sort of exercise um, helps preserve it with more authenticity over time. Um, and so that's a, a kind of a phenomenon I, I sort of explored in the book as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'd be really curious to to read that article. The, uh, because the article again, is called Humor in India. And it's in the New Yorker. So if you Google Homer in India, you'll yeah. see it. Yeah, I'll check that out. Um, think about, I mean, I, I, I bet you've had this experience. You know, you've got a group of friends and you've known each other for a long time. And it's interesting who remembers which stories. I'll also tell that story to my friends. I remember, like, you're the one who told me that story. You know, 
uh, I don't know if you know Randall Goodgame, but he has a terrible memory for his own stories. And, <laughs> and so he'll tell me a story and then I'll sort of, you know, later, remember that time you told me about blah, blah, blah. He's like, I don't remember that at all. And, uh, and so he's, Randall's a person who has sort of external memories of, of the people around him sort of remember things that he, that he forgets. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, memories can be these sort of elusive, unreliable things too, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which, Absolutely. um, which is another reason why I think it's so, um, it, it's so important to at least take those, you know, monumental moments in our own life and commit them to diaries or journals. Yeah. Um, here I raise well, mine Ebenezer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and, and it's, I think it's why a lot of us have an obsession with capturing stuff on our cameras, on our phones, our video cameras on our phone, um, you know, because it sort of takes the need or dare I even say the responsibility to, you know, remember things because right. it's, it's on our phone yeah. now. And so I have it there. Um, and so I, I do wonder too, how much of an impact a long-term impact that has had on us because we've become so reliant on just, mm-hmm. I can just pull out my phone and take a, a, a video of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think. And so I don't even experience in the present. Right. Because I'm, I'm saving it to my external memory device. Yeah. Which is, which is something that I, I tried to speak to in, in the second book of this duology. Um, just this idea of being so obsessed with, you know, um, the act of imprinting these memories to be able to recall them later that we lose sight of the now and the mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think years from now, we'll definitely be able to point to the long-term negative effects of being able to just pull out our phones and take pictures and, and, and record on video um, like that. So, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't be good. Um, I, it can't, I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like it would be good, but I'm not good at predicting these things. Right. And, and if, if there were ways to use that preserved mental capacity and energy for more positive things, maybe, maybe it would be a good, sure. A good thing. In my, uh, uh, one of my sons was, was in whatever, what science class would it be where you, I mean, I don't think they took astronomy. Anyway, doesn't matter. He was in a class where the the teacher was trying to explain some mathematical principle of the heavens, you know. And um, he said, um, so how do we figure out, how might we figure out the circumference of the earth? This boy raised his hand and said, Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, gosh. (laughs) If that isn't... Yeah. emblematic of where, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and here's the thing I will say that that is, yeah, that's funny it, as, as a writer, it has afforded us the luxury of being able to research very, absolutely. you know, you know, it's just, yeah. I had a, I have a writer buddy who um, he set his um, one of his novels in new England and he, at the time of writing the first draft of the manuscript, he hadn't visited um, that region of America yet. And so he just did a bunch of Google Earth searches to sort of get a sense of atmosphere and, and setting. Um, I do think later on he, he, he made a trip. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the luxury that we're afforded as writers in 2022 20, and beyond, 
there is definitely some some pros as sure you know sure. as there are many cons sure but there's yeah. there's definitely some benefits too right um, I'm curious why why was your friend setting a story on a place he'd never been he, presumably he'd been other places oh for, for sure I think he um, I think he was really struck or, or really interested in um, stepping out of his comfort zone and, and going to new places and, and sort of the challenge of writing in, in a new environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that you, you hear people often say you, you write what you know, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes that can pigeonhole you, you know, um, it's it, because as writers, you know, we want to be able to, you know, explore and unpack new and interesting things in our writing, but we want to do it with, authenticity. We want to, we want to do it with, um, with a sense of credibility too, you know, because we don't want our readers to feel as if they can't trust us as, as if we're not air quotes experts in whatever it is that we're writing. Um, so I think he really liked the challenge of, well, I've never been there. I, I, I want to go there, you yeah. know? So yeah. he started with Google earth images, but then eventually he did end up going up there and, yeah. um, so yeah, I think I, I, if I had to guess, he, he he's 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 never said that explicitly, but if I had to guess, yeah. that would be why. Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I want to switch gears if you don't mind, because you had a blog post that I found very interesting um, over at your at your website, um, and this was the idea that that, and we don't have to you don't have to say any more about this than you're comfortable saying, but you since you blogged about it, I think you're comfortable talking about it. And that is the idea that your tendency to as your your tendencies and your gifts as a storyteller, um that's possible for that to go wrong in your own sort of for lack of a better word, mental health. As you I mean we're all we're always making up stories about that explain our situation. And then sometimes we forget that we made up those stories yeah. <laughs> and live, you know, we've, we've made up a fictional story and then live into that story as if it were reality. Yeah. And then you also said uh, through the help of uh, a friend uh, that you were able to redirect your narrative energies to something that was a little healthier. So can you talk about that a little bit? I'd love to hear more about that. Absolutely. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, I think the, <sighs> As a Christian, I believe that, you know, Satan, the enemy, hijacks, um, you know, what God has gifted us, our talents, our skills, what God has intended for good. I think he, he, Satan can hijack and warp that um, to our detriment. And specifically in my life as a storyteller, as a, as a creative writer, um, I've struggled for, for years with insecurity um, and various forms, various manifestations of anxiety. And one of the things that I experienced specifically in my marriage was in what my therapist called intrusive thoughts. And it's where, you know, your insecurity sort of plants the seed, this false narrative that bloom, that starts to bloom the more you sort of water it and the more you sort of tend to it. And that intrusive thought can just grow into just these weeds um, and, and, and before you know it, you're, you're leaning into and believing something that's completely fictitious, something that didn't even happen. Um, and so 
I, I, I was doing that in, in my marriage, in, um, in my friendships, um, where, you know, I would, I would feel insecure about something and then my mind would race and I would write these stories and I would start to believe them. And then, um, you know, I would close up and I would start treating others. I would start treating my wife as if that thing that I dreamed up was real. Um, and so, you know, I, through, you know, lots of therapy and through, you know, help from my community and through the grace of, of both God and my wife, I was able to recognize that, um, you know, in that's all a fiction and, and that's all, you know, um, those intrusive thoughts, I can sort of reclaim that sort of part of creativity and redirect it and, and use it for good. And, and I believe, um, you know, that, that creating is one of the ways that we can give God, the ultimate creator, glory. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm a, I tell people I'm, I'm a Christian writer, but I don't create Christian art. So I write for general market, general, you know, general audiences. And I like to smuggle in elements of my faith and, and convictions that I have, my beliefs into the stories. Um, but I firmly believe that, that, you know, as a Christian creative, that's one of the practical ways that we can give, that we can worship um, is, is through creating art. And so that journey taught me a lot of different things. And I've certainly not arrived, you know, I'm still learning um, and relearning certain things, but, um, and it's helped that, you know, as a culture, as a society, you know, we've, um, you know, mental health awareness is, you know, on everyone's tongue, on everyone's mind. We're, we're, it's, it's a part of the conversation now. Um, and I think that our generation, my generation is sort of reclaiming this idea of, you know, going and getting counseling and getting therapy and, and, uh, addressing mental health, um, in, in, in viewing it as a really positive thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think previous generations might've viewed that as, Oh my gosh, you're going to counseling. Well, what, what, what's wrong? What's going on? Like, you know, and now it's, you know, it's like anything else, you know, you, you go to physical therapy, you go. So yeah, I I appreciate you asking. Yeah. I just, I, I love that, that sort of framing of, um, of, you know, making that connection between this. And by the way, you know, ever, it's, it's not like there's a special class of storytelling, you know, creative storytellers who make up image, you know, stories in their mind. I mean, everybody is at least that kind of storyteller. Like we're always coming up with stories to explain. Absolutely. Situations we find ourselves in. And it's amazing how wrong we are <laughs> so often in, in, in the story, you know, why that person didn't acknowledge me. Yeah. You know, across the room at the coffee shop, there, there are a whole lot of reasons somebody didn't acknowledge you across the, the way. And a lot of them are pretty innocent. Um, and somehow we skip straight to the more dramatic, you know, they hate me or I've offended them or whatever. And, uh, and I love the idea of, of redirecting those narrative energies that we, um, that we, that we all have. Right. And, yeah. and, you suggested in your, in your blog post that maybe, you know, the fact that you spend a lot of your, your time crafting stories that, that maybe it was, it was, you know, even more intense, these intrusive thoughts, perhaps 
for you. And again, I don't, I don't know, I don't have any way of adjudicating whether that's true or not true, whether it's harder for you than that. And you don't have any way of knowing either, right? Who, who sure. knows how hard it is for other people. But, the, but we do know that we all, we're all storytellers for better or worse. And yeah. it's, it's really helpful to, to think in terms of, let me harness these, these storytelling tendencies that are there for better and not for worse. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, case in point, when, when people, my friends and, and acquaintances started to learn that I was, you know, uh, publishing my first book with, you know, um, tr- traditionally, I can't tell you, Jonathan, how many people reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I've always had a novel, a story that I've wanted to tell. Can I buy you coffee and, and pick your brain on the process? So I think there, all of us have a bent toward storytelling. And, and I think we all have a unique voice and a story to tell. Um, and so, I, I mean, I just, I can't count on both hands how many times that's happened in the last, you know, six, seven, eight months. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Everybody, I think, has that in, intrinsically in them, that, that, that need, that sort of urgency to want to tell a story. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Julian, we got to bring, uh, bring this thing into the station. So I'm going to end with my uh, typical ending yeah. question. That is who are the writers who make you want to write? So um, I love this question because at the top of the episode, you know, I mentioned how I believe all writers are, you know, readers first, obviously. And so, you know, I can, you know, certainly point to like my Mount Rushmore of, of writers. And um, I think back to some of the earliest books that I read and, and, you know, certainly, gosh, it's, it's a cliche, I know, but I remember the first time I read The Hobbit, mm-hmm. I was just enthralled um, mm-hmm. and, and just couldn't put it down. Um, I devoured J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. I mean, just devoured. It's um, the only fiction series that I've read all the way through twice. Mm. Um, because my TBR list is so long, I try to use my energy and time towards new, new fiction, new, new, mm. uh, new stuff. But that's the one that I just, I, I, I came back to. Yeah. Um, and then, so, so definitely, you know, definitely Tolkien, definitely, um, definitely JK Rowling. I love Brandon Sanderson. He's yeah. a f- fantasy science fiction writer based out of Utah. Yeah. Um, he was in the news recently for, um, doing a Kickstarter for, yeah. for his books and the whole, yeah, the whole shakeup with, with publishing and, and all that stuff. But his stories actually really are great. And he's very generous with his insight. He's got an awesome yeah. YouTube channel where he posts his BYU lectures. I encourage anyone listening to this who is interested in craft to go look up Brandon Sanderson's yeah. uh, YouTube so, channel. So generous, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those are definitely some some authors, some some writers that, that come to mind. Um, and of course, I think C.S. Lewis, what's so great about him is that he was the perfect balance of, you know, uh, interesting stories and allegory and fiction, but then, you know, he's got problem of pain. He's got, you know, mere Christianity, these musings, these, mm-hmm. um, you know, writings on, on, gosh, I'm sure every other guest has said C.S. Lewis. So my apologies. A lot have, sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason, right? He's great. Yeah. He's great. Um, so yeah, those are, those are definitely some of the, the top authors that, that, yeah. that come to mind. How about you? Can, can I, can I flip the script and ask who are some of your favorite writers? You know, the, well, the, the, there's two different questions. Who are your favorite writers? And then who are the ones that make you want to sit down and write? Sure. Right. Fair, fair. And, um, and so, um, 
an answer I often give or who actually makes me want to go write something is Charles Portis. Um, not super well known, but he, but he wrote um, True Grit. And um, he's not going to go down as, in history as one of the greats of all time or anything like that. But when I read what he writes, I think what he does there is kind of like what I want to do, but he does it better. And I want to I want to be better at what I do when I see see his. And then, you know, Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson. Oh, how could I forget Wendell Berry? Yeah. Oh, his poetry. I'll say in the poetry uh, medium, Wendell Berry is someone who makes me want to write. Yeah. Yeah, I, his, it's the the beauty in his simple prose. It's just, but he can turn a phrase, and so I mean, he's yeah. he's great. He's yeah. incredible. Yeah, and of course, Flannery O'Connor. That's my other, oh. you know, who who uh, again, sort of, um, not that I'm, you know, not that I have ambitions to, you know, to be the greatest American short story writer of all time, like I think she was, um, but she does things in such a way that I think that's kind of the way I want to do things. Right. And, and then when I read, you know, the example of writers I love that don't make me want to go write is, you know, I love Faulkner, never going to write like Faulkner. Don't have any interest in writing that way, but still love what he does. And I love John Milton, but don't read paradise lost and say, I think I'm going to go do that. Right. So I like, I like that twist on the question. Cause, um, I, I love reading, uh, Neil Gaiman, um, mm-hmm. And, but I'm not going to write American gods, you know, I'm not going to write and he can get pretty graphic and, you know, he can get pretty, um, pretty racy in some of his content. Um, but of course, you know, he has, you know, some other stuff that's a little bit more tame, like stardust. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, that's, that's a, that's an interesting spin on, on the question. Who's a writer maybe that you admire who yeah. wouldn't necessarily want to aspire to write like them. Right. It's just not, it's, it's not what I'm able to do or it's not where my gifts lie. Sure. Um, you know, quite apart from the content, but um, my, my gifts just don't, I, I, I'm old enough to know where, I'm, what sort of direction my gifts point. And it points a little more in the direction of what Planner O'Connor does than what Faulkner. Yeah. Does. Yeah. That's All awesome. right, Julian. Thank you. We better run. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. It's uh, this has been, been fun to talk to you. So good thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.